This is an ABC podcast. This is the Philosopher's Zone on RN. Welcome to the program. I'm David Rutledge, and I want to start this week with a little game of Spot the Difference. Tell me who's the odd man out in this collection of voices. Now, let's have a bit more of a look at Greta Thunberg and how she has highlighted the complete surrender of rational thinking and reasoned debate. The climate hysteria movement is not about science. If it were about science, it would be led by scientists rather than by politicians and a mentally ill Swedish child who is... Greta Thunberg seems chronically attracted to apocalyptic visions, chronically attracted to... Fear. It was all a little melodramatic. It was all end of the world, apocalyptic. I don't want millions, if not billions of young people watching Greta do that kind of speech and genuinely think the planet is literally about to end. So, who's the odd man out? Well, the answer is, (laughs) it was a trick question. There's no odd man out. They're all blokes. Which isn't to say that everyone currently dumping on the 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl is a man. But the prominence of male voices being raised in a very familiar kind of paternalistic indignation against Greta Thunberg and her message hasn't gone unnoticed. There's been a lot of commentary over the past couple of weeks about the way in which the climate debate isn't purely about science. It's also about gender and power and the deep investment that patriarchal culture has in maintaining business as usual. Well, this week we're talking about climate change and gender, art and the insights of ecofeminism. Historically, environmental injustice and other social injustices, including gender kind of injustice, have been strongly intertwined and this dates back centuries and we're still seeing many examples of that today. So on a global scale, women have a much smaller ecological footprint and women and those in their care are most likely to suffer acute detrimental effects of climate change. So they're 14 times more likely to die in a catastrophic climate event. And they're more vulnerable to kind of violence and disease during and after such an event. So what we're coming to understand now is that climate change is not gender neutral. That's Lara Stevens. She's a research fellow with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne, also a theatre and performance studies scholar and co-editor of a book that came out last year titled Feminist Ecologies, Changing Environments in the Anthropocene. The IPCC reports and the United Nations summits are trying to address this kind of imbalance within gendered injustice that's coming with environmental injustices. And I think we can see some examples of this in Australia, in particular in mining communities where there's been a lot of sociological research done on the way that mining towns are affecting not only uh, the natural landscapes but also the situation for women in these areas. You know, mining towns attract a workforce that is predominantly male um, and has extraordinarily high wages. Um, It develops a kind of masculine culture around the kind of mining industry and one that also is fairly exclusionary as well. So what they've found then in these towns is that there is a kind of persistent and overt sort of race, uh, sexism, racism, sexual harassment in everyday life, particularly for women who are actually employed within the industry, which is, makes up about 15% at the moment. And there are much higher instances of family and non-family violence 
And there's a really strong link between this kind of rising social disorder and alcohol consumption in these regions. So the bar culture and the masculine sort of culture, the need to escape the daily grind of whatever you're doing in the kind of extraction industry and how brutal that is also creates a kind of separation, a gendered separation um, within the culture. So we have a stronger incidence then of prostitutions and also famously kind of skimpy bars, which are pubs where women serve food and drinks in their underwear or in some cases topless. And these are kind of very dominant in rural mining towns in Australia. And there has been a lot of research on the kind of horrific violent experiences and of abuse and harassment through this culture, uh, which breeds a certain dispossession from the land, I suppose, but also a strong pressure on the social fabric of the life in these communities as well. If we step back from the mining communities and look at the mining industry as a whole, maybe globally, do you see there a certain attitude towards the natural world which is reflected in an attitude towards women? Is that drawing a long bow or do you think there's a, you know, a strong connection to be made there? Yeah, precisely. So this is the whole point of ecofeminism is to show that there is a relationship between the kind of historic and, and contemporary attitudes towards the natural world and nature, um, environment and towards women um, and children and other others. So ecofeminism is really about showing the ways in which gender and nature have been historically linked, how they have a shared oppression because of that kind of link. Uh, and also the ways in which race, class, age and disability are also uh, aligned with the natural world often. So in a way, the term ecofeminism is misleading in a lot of ways because it's not only about gendered interests. Um, it's actually foundationally about the intersection of thinking environmental problems through a holistic sense. So thinking through um, race, class, age, disability, gender, um, and the ways in which these kind of varied hierarchies of disenfranchisement intersect to have a, a common kind of ground with ecofeminism. Yeah, given that very complex intersectionality, are, are there voices within ecofeminism who say that, well, really, we should maybe not call this ecofeminism. There's something about the feminism in it that, well, while you can see why that term is used, that it doesn't truly or, or accurately represent what ecofeminism is about. I think that it's potentially why it's been a bit marginalised in academia um, and why people don't know about what it is because it's two things that people are relatively disinterested in, <laughs> women's rights and ecological rights, although this is, I think, changing as time goes on. But absolutely, it really is about that intersection of many different interests and it comes very strongly historically out of anti-war movements, so out of the Vietnam, anti-Vietnam war movements, um, out of Indigenous rights movements across the world, um, out of Black civil rights movements, queer rights advocacy. But I'm not sure how significant it is that it's been sidelined by academia in some ways because it's such a strongly practical as well as philosophical kind of movement. Uh, all the really important eco-feminists have also been activists 
and have had their own ways of engaging with um, environmental activism and um, women's rights activism as well. So this is another kind of strand to ecofeminism that it's been strongly tied to an activist tradition as well, that you have to leave the theory that you can't just talk about it. So perhaps part of its marginalisation in academia is also because it's been led by women who are also outside of the academy, who are really on the ground, as it were. Yeah. Well, Kate Rigby has made a really interesting point where she says that ecofeminism has had to work very hard to show that it's more than simply a naive form of feminine nature worship. Right, so there might be something there in that relative lack of academic interest. But do you think that that is a problem, that there is this equation of women with the earth and with nurturing and being more in tune with the rhythms of the natural environment? Is that, is that a helpful connection for you or does it reinforce certain harmful stereotypes? The so-called essentialist debate within ecofeminism has been strong and has been linked to this concern over ecofeminists being purely kind of nature worshipping and um, going back to the body. So this anxiety is also an anxiety for feminism uh, more generally, and it goes back to Simone de Beauvoir and her claim that one cannot be an intellectual and a good mother. At the same time, you cannot think and you cannot dote at a child on a child <laughs> simultaneously that these two activities are at cross-purposes. And de Beauvoir talks about housework as well as a kind of Sisyphean task, that you're kind of trapped in a constant, an eternal presence, she calls it, of endless uh, repetition. And there is this fear then, the coming out of those who were schooled by de Beauvoir, that you mustn't draw attention to the body, that you must avoid any kind of biological determinism and reproduction because that will get you away from the masculine sphere of the rational. There is also, of course, the fear, on the other hand, that if you ignore the body and women's reproductive capacities, uh, women's relationship to nature historically through cultural avenues, that then you deny everything about what women's role in society has been. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't um, in some ways. But then ecofeminists come along and say, well, it's not just an, a choice between tightening your subordination by siding with nature or rejecting nature entirely and seeking some kind of liberation from nature, that actually, you know, men and women are both from and of and with nature. It's just that men have distanced themselves more from it historically um, and that rational has been privileged over the natural, you know, throughout the history of philosophy, throughout Enlightenment science, throughout patriarchal capitalism. Uh, so we've got to try and negotiate uh, the women-nature connection and kind of walk the tightrope between these issues without falling one way or the other. And I think that today the need to connect with our biology, with our bodies, um, whatever they may be, for both um, sexes and everything in between is absolutely vital if we're going to respond to the present climate emergency. You know, even this idea that de Beauvoir brings up about being caught in an eternal present, you know, 
today I feel like we're surrounded by uh, well-being uh, workshops that try and bring us back to the present, that actually we're seeking out how to live in the present because we're so disconnected from the earth, from our bodies, and we're kind of, some of us are working hard to reaffirm the present and not live in the past or the future. So I think that's kind of an interesting aspect to it. But um, Ariel Soleil, the eco-feminist philosopher, talks about women as being privileged agents of eco-revolution. So she says they have a kind of epistemic advantage in responding to the things that the earth needs because they've been situated culturally in closer proximity to the natural world. So this is not an ontological claim that women are closer to nature by any means. So it's a a firm rejection of the idea that this is in any way natural. But the idea that women, because they've been placed there culturally in the private sphere, in the natural sphere, um, that their actions of nurturing, child rearing, reproduction, environmental advocacy mean that they have been more able to develop a kind of non-instrumental ethics of care, an ethics of care for our land, for others, um, that is not based on exploitation, instrumentalization. you know, the idea that Mother Nature can just keep giving and giving and she'll be like our mothers, forgive us for all our sins and uh, kind of allow us to take and take from her without giving anything back. This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. My guest is Lara Stevens from the University of Melbourne, and we are all in the Philosopher's Zone. Lara Stevens is many things. She's an eco-feminist, a theatre and performance studies scholar. She's a performance artist and she's a mother of two children. And if you happen to be in Melbourne over the first weekend in November, there's going to be a public philosophy forum on motherhood. That's part of the Crossing Avenues initiative designed to get philosophy out of the academy and into the community. And Lara Stevens will be part of that forum. I'll give you some details at the end of the program. But Lara has become a mother at a time when the question of how and even whether to bring more people into the world is a big part of the conversation around feminism and climate change. Some of the key issues that ecofeminism has been responding to in terms of motherhood have been thinking about this myth of overpopulation. And I'm calling it a myth in the sense that (laughs) when I was at school... (laughs) Well, it's a relative term, right? Yeah, when we yeah. use it, it's very loaded that the idea of using the term overpopulation, because you know, when I was at school, we certainly learned about the about problems of overpopulation, and it was something that I never really questioned, right? That we need less people in this on this planet um, because we're putting a strain on its natural resources. All of a sudden, we're kind of conscious that we're putting a strain on its natural resources when it comes to a question of overpopulation. And then it kind of came to the Howard years, and I remember thinking, well, how come there are all these incentives for people to have babies? That's really confusing. Like, why are we pushing people to have babies if we have a kind of overpopulation problem? Oh, yeah, that was Peter Costello, wasn't it? Have an extra one for Australia. <laughs> right, right. So this uh, this kind of didn't make sense to me, but ecofeminism sorted it out for me <laughs> because right. this idea of which bodies matter in terms of who has a kind of a right to be on this planet and what kind of resources they can use 
um, is something that ecofeminism has been concerned with. So ecofeminism looks to the idea of where does the ecological debt lie um, within the world. So it's first world nations like our own um, that are using the most energy resources. So a US citizen, for example, uses 300 times as much energy as a Bangladeshi in their lifetime. An Australian person uses 20 times more energy than an Indonesian. So we come to have blind spots then in terms of population control, um, where some bodies of some particular nations are considered to be overpopulating, uh, while some nations are considered to be underpopulating. But in those nations like our own, which are considered to not be producing, reproducing um, enough, uh, those bodies are actually taking up an enormous kind of ecological debt. And so ecofeminists ask, then why should women workers in in the developing, so-called developing world, pick up the tab for this ecological crisis? And why are those bodies being intervened upon? So why are Brazilian women 40% of Brazilian women being sterilised. We have enormous sterilisation programs in India, um, which are are occurring at around 26 years of age. You know, liberal feminists often support the idea of population control, but they're not thinking about the way that women's bodies in particular nations are being invaded and controlled through population control programs, through sterilisation, through the encouragement of use of the pill and so forth to protect the world from the so-called threat of overpopulation when, in fact, maybe we need to be thinking about this from a kind of ecological debt perspective. How much do the bodies uh, use up energy in particular national um, contexts? Well, you have two children yourself. What were your own concerns or what what were you thinking about as you considered becoming a mother? Well, precisely this kind of concern over the fact that I would be having very privileged uh, children in a, you know, a very privileged and wealthy country. So their carbon footprint, what was their carbon footprint going to be? That was a big concern of mine. In my children's lifetime, there's going to be an incredible decrease in the quality of life if we don't act quickly. So I was really concerned about their a quality of life on the planet and in this country and elsewhere. And, yeah, I guess just thinking as well about how much having children would take away a certain capacity to care for the environment and for women's causes as well. You know, when you focus on the kind of bourgeois nuclear family, when you turn inwards to protect your own, then you necessarily kind of give up something as well for your capacity to turn outwards and and kind of work for a bigger community. It kind of makes you more parochial in a way. And that was a concern for me as well. Did it bring you to the point where you considered whether or not to have children at all? Was that ever sort of in the balance? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And I think that for the next generation, for my children's generation, I also can't imagine being a grandparent because I can't imagine that we're going to address this problem fast enough for the quality of life to feel good enough for them to want to have children. Well, earlier this year, you staged a performance that can be read as a a kind of eco-feminist statement. Um, Let's talk about that. It's really interesting. First of all, can you describe the performance? What took place? 
It was a piece where I played myself as a new mother, as a philosopher, as an intellectual, um, interspersed with other voices. And the piece opened with me feeding, breastfeeding my then 11-month-old daughter, Zari. And it explored the kind of history of Western attitudes towards the natural world and the alignment of uh, women in particular with the natural world. So at one point, Zari was on stage with me, uh, running around playing with toys, and I kind of posed the question to her of whether she might end up being a chick, a bird, a kitten, a lamb, a cow, a bitch, a hen, a shrew, a goose, a filly, a bat, a crow, a heifer, a vixen, or a fox. So this was a line that came out of Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch, these kind of ways in which we use language often unconsciously to describe women and that kind of alignment of the female with the natural world, even for so-called kind of positive uh, affirmations, <laughs> calling someone a fox or a, a cougar or whatever it is. The breastfeeding is really interesting, I think, because that's something that when it takes place in public, a lot of people just kind of shuffle uncomfortably and they're just not really cool with it at all. Was that partly your intention to elicit those feelings of discomfort? And, and also, you know, what were you saying there about what we're talking about today, about climate change and its gendered effect? What was the connection there with breastfeeding? So I wanted to breastfeed on stage, not so much as a kind of shock to the public. I'm not sure that that many people who were coming to the show were particularly shocked by seeing somebody breastfeeding on stage. The stage was... manager had a, a concern or two, though, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> Related. The stage manager was concerned with the breastfeeding on stage and also the, the pumping of milk. There is one point in the show where I took out the pump and talked about the value of milk, mother's milk, human mother's milk on the kind of market for sale and showed the labour of pumping the milk, something which we don't often see, but is incredibly exhausting for mothers. But really the idea about breastfeeding on stage was more to go back to that eco-feminist project of breaking down the binary between nature and culture. So in philosophy, binaries have been set up to kind of set the world in opposition to each other. So common ones that we know, nature, culture, you know, reason, emotion. And really the idea of breastfeeding on stage was to break down this nature-culture binary, to actually be a woman on stage speaking about philosophical ideas, but also to be a body, to be able to be both those things at once, to be performing my mammalian function as a, a mother, but to really show how that can be muddied, that how that separation throughout the history of philosophy of things like nature and culture is such a, a false uh, um, separation and it's such a dangerous separation because it means you're either one thing or the other, that there's no dialogue between the two. Um, so really it was about showing that we have a body and how important that it is to be connected to the body because if we're not connected to the body, if we're just Cartesian heads severed from our bodies, um, just pure thought, um, then there's no way we're going to be able to engage with the natural world and nurture the natural world and care for it. There's a, a fascinating idea that's explored through the work of uh, the Japanese artist Ai Hasegawa and also by uh, Donna Haraway, American feminist, both of whom you've written about, where the traditional close bond between parent and child is, is reimagined as a bond between human and non-human. 
And Donna Haraway says that we should think of other species as being as close to us as our own children, to the point where we don't even perhaps feel the need to have children at all. And she goes further and says that this, this breaking of the traditional species bond is, is essential to our planetary survival, as well as being something that feminism is uniquely positioned to put along. How do you go along with that? Well, so I think art plays a really important role in our contemporary ecological crisis and how we are going to approach it. And this is something that Plumwood was saying in the 90s as well, Val Plumwood, the Australian philosopher, is that if we can't imagine our way out of this ecological crisis, this is going to be our downfall, that in actual fact, imagination uh, is going to be key to thinking our way through the problems that we have, because we can't just tweak a little bit here um, and there. We need we need a total kind of reimagining of the ways in which we live. So I think art is doing this at the moment in really interesting ways. And Donna Haraway as well is kind of asking us to rethink things quite radically. She has a slogan, make kin, not babies. Um, so she's arguing that we need to be changing our relations to the non-human species and adopting them as our own. And it's really a challenge to the kind of bourgeois nuclear family, which has been an important part of the capitalist uh, instrumentalist narrative um, up until now. And it's, yeah, an, an alternative to the kind of oppressions of that family. And it has a history as well within feminism that's trying to see its way out of this kind of bourgeois nuclear family as well. So Shulamith Firestone talks about the way that pregnancy is barbaric and we need new forms of family organisation or familial organisation um, and to use new technologies to kind of achieve those um, forms of organisation is going to be the future, as she sees it, in the 1970s. Um, and it's sort of this fear, the, the essentialist fear about the biological determinism of women, uh, that we don't want to be tied to our bodies. But it's also more complicated than that because it's also thinking, well, it's not just a total rejection of the body, but also a redefinition of what it means to make a family. And I think that we are going to have to embrace some of these ideas if we're going to make it through our current ecological crisis. How optimistic are you that these aesthetic reimaginings, philosophical reimaginings, the work of activists, that, that all this is going to amount to something that can give us hope, I guess, rather than the sort of fear and alarm that is very understandably uh, dominant at the moment. And I guess as a parent, to some extent, you have to be optimistic. Is it is it difficult to be that? <laughs> yes, I think it is difficult to be optimistic at the moment, but I think that art does offer some models of alternative futures that are really exciting, that are really hopeful, that show the creativity and um, imaginative capacities of the human, which are really vital and, and wonderful. And I think that we're going to need everybody with all their skills on board, whether it's philosophers or scientists, you know, politicians and activists. Um, everyone's going to have to play their bit in imagining us out of this kind of reality that we're in. So I feel both <laughs> optimistic and, and at times demoralised. 
Well, I think she speaks for all of us. That's Lara Stevens, research fellow with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne and co-editor of Feminist Ecologies, Changing Environments in the Anthropocene. Full details on the website, and as I mentioned, Lara Stevens will be part of the Crossing Avenues Philosophy Workshop on Motherhood on Sunday, November the 3rd in Melbourne. That's a public forum. The Crossing Avenues events are very much designed to get people doing philosophy in a way that's accessible to everyone. So put that in your calendar for November the 3rd. The uh, time and the venue are on the website. That's the Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. You can tweet me at David P Zone. Thanks for joining me this week. See you next time. Listener.